0: In Philippians chapter 3 We'll be looking at the first three verses it's, it's difficult to not continue past verse 3 Because it's connected to the rest of that passage But for time's sake we're looking at the first three verses today Apostle Paul writes Finally my brothers, rejoice in the Lord To write the same things to you is no trouble to me And is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. He was not seeker friendly, by the way. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. Who worship by the spirit of God. And glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we are the circumcision. Who worship by the spirit of God. Who boast in Christ Jesus alone. And put no confidence in the flesh. That is who we are. And yet often we forget who we are. I pray, Lord, your spirit would remind us today. And would confirm that truth in ways we've never known before. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. When I was a pharmaceutical rep before I went into went to seminary, I was a rep in Nashville, and one of my responsibilities was yearly I had to shadow a physician. It was a way to get to know the physicians, but it was also a way to learn their craft and their prescribing habits. And in 1997, I shadowed Dr. Tate, who was an ENT, your nose, and throat doctor, in Brentwood, Tennessee. And I'll never forget that day because I was sitting in on one of his appointments with a young patient who was 10 to 12 years old. And this patient had never smelled or tasted anything in his life because of sinus problems. He was born with it. And Dr. Tate looked at this young fellow and he said, I've got some good news for you. He said, there is new technology that now with a, a very minor procedure, a surgical procedure, I believe you're going to be able to taste food for the first time and smell things for the first time. And I thought that little boy was just going to light up, but he didn't. He just looked at the doctor and he said, I don't care about tasting I don't care about smelling. And Dr. Tate looked at that little boy and he says, Son, once you have tasted, once you have smelled, you will never, ever want to go back to your condition again. Frankly, no one would. It would be insane to want to go back to that condition, wouldn't it? Analogously, there is no authentic Christian who would ever want to go back to their pre-converted condition. Except we do. In a functional sense, every time we're joyless. Which is antithetical to the Spirit-filled life. Paul says in Romans 8... You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit-filled life is the authentic Christian life. Joylessness is antithetical to the Christian life. And Paul knows that joylessness is devastating, not only to your individual walks, but to the church family. And two signs of joylessness in a church is grumbling and disputing. The very thing he addressed in Galatians or Philippians 2 verse 14. Grumbling and disputing. Complaining and division. Those are two signs of joylessness. Both of them were rearing their ugly heads In Philippi. And I believe. It's such a tendency. This is one of the reasons. This. This letter was written. By the spirit through the pen of Paul. Because it's a real tendency. In every church. Ever since. And hence the reason Paul uses. The noun. Joy. Or the verb rejoice. Fifteen times. In four chapters. That's a short letter to use that noun or verb 15 times. But Paul knows also that joylessness is a gospel issue. Indeed, the Greek word, the Greek root for joy, and the Greek root for grace is the same word. You could spell it in English C H A R. It's the same root. A person who is walking in step with the truth of the gospel, to use Paul's language elsewhere, is a person of grace, a person of gratitude, a person of praise. Who says, this is my song, this is my story, as we sang this morning. It's a contented person, and hence, a joyful person. That's the authentic Christian life. Everything else is a parody. That's the only life that is worthy of the gospel to use Philippians 1 27. It's the only life that can serve as a light in the world. Philippians 2, verse 15. Conversely, joylessness eclipses the light of the gospel. Joylessness eclipses the glory of the gospel and is the fruit of Of either anti-gospel teaching or anti-gospel thinking. What do I mean by that distinction? Anti-gospel teaching is believing a different gospel. Anti-gospel thinking is having an evangelical understanding of the gospel. It's all of grace. But my perspective on things is anything but gospel grace. And that always leads to joylessness. And so Paul goes after that today in our passage. And in so doing, he gives us a picture of authentic Christianity. And the first thing we're going to see, right out of the chute, he addresses the issue of joy. An authentic Christian rejoices in the Lord. Notice in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, this phrase, finally, my brothers, has prompted a lot of humor at preacher's expense. The story goes of a little boy who asked his dad, Dad, what does the preacher mean when he says finally? And the the dad whispered to his son, absolutely nothing, son. Only an apostle can say finally and still have 40% of his message left. That's Philippians. Or if you wanted to divide it by chapters, 50% of his message that's left. In fact, he's going to say it again in chapter 4, verse 8. But actually, the word could be translated so then. I kind of wish the translators had translated it so then here in chapter 3 and left it finally in chapter 4, verse 8. You have to consider the context. What Paul is doing here is picking up the theme of rejoicing that he introduced in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. Notice at the end of chapter 2, verse 17, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Where's Paul writing from? From a prison prison. He's been falsely accused. He's there by false charges. Have you ever been done wrong? Have you ever been done wrong in the church? What is your response? I'm going to get them. Paul says, I rejoice. I'm glad. And then he says in verse 18, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is diagnosing their real problem. Their real problem is not grumbling. Their real problem is not division. It's joylessness, which means they're not walking in the spirit. That's their real problem. In other words, Paul is saying the authentic Christian life is a life of joy. In fact, if you wanted to summarize the authentic Christian life in four words, it would be this. It is someone who rejoices in the Lord. That's their trademark. It's not that they just go to church. That they're active in the church. All that's important. But it's someone who at their funeral, the only thing we could say about them to summarize their life is that she or he rejoiced in the Lord. This is the mark of a Christian. It's the distinguishing mark sign of a Christian. And remember... Joy travels with his friends. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Unfortunately, joy has its counterfeits as well. Every good thing, the devil counterfeits. Every good thing, the devil counterfeits, including joy. And false joy abounds in a broken world. In fact, most things that we call joy isn't joy at all. Let me give you just a couple of examples. This isn't a comprehensive list. First of all, there is circumstantial joy. That is the elation, the emotional high you feel when all your eyes are dotted. You've gotten the raise, the promotion, You've got a vacation to look forward to. All the people in your life are loving on you. Things are going smooth. That is circumstantial joy. But this circumstantial joy buzz, if you will, makes us slaves to positive circumstances. We become really enslaved to our need for positive circumstances. It's a form of slavery. It's not joy. Incidentally, it's hard to discern between true joy and circumstantial joy. And that's why the Lord graciously allows trials in our life. It exposes what we're really trusting in. He allows disappointments in our life. It exposes whether we have joy or just circumstantial counterfeit joy. So counterfeit joy is a counterfeit or circumstantial joy is a counterfeit joy, a second kind of joy that is counterfeit is what I call lawbreaker's joy. This is the perverse pleasure that comes from something wrongly gained. Proverbs 9:17, the writer says that stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret. Is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there. It is perversely attained. Something as seemingly harmless as exaggerating a story. To make you look more heroic. Or something as deceitful as pornography. Or sexual immorality. But this isn't joy. It's the destructive and temporal high of self-rule. There's a high that comes with self-rule. And that's why the Apostle Paul's word here is so crucial. He wants the people of Fisherville to have true joy. It's what we were made for. It's what we're hardwired for. It's what we long for. We're joy junkies. And the first thing he says about this, notice he says rejoice in the Lord. The first thing we can see here is it's in the present tense. He says rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice is in the present tense. What does that mean? There is not one moment of the authentic Christian's life that can be run on anything but spirit wrought joy. That is the fuel for the authentic Christian life the moment you are operating on any other fuel you are no longer living the christian life it's present tense secondly it's in the active voice now what does that mean well joy is a gift it's a fruit of the spirit that's why the david the psalmist would say restore unto me the joy of my salvation but it's also a task it's a responsibility we are called to take responsibility and be joyful. This means we have to take action. We turn from all the, the counterfeit joys. We see them for what they are. We turn from them. We live a life of turning from them, dying to them. And we turn to the fount of all supply, the true source of joy. We we confess our joylessness instead of letting it dictate our homes and our relationships. In our church life, we confess it, we repent of it, we cry out to God to restore the joy. Third, it's in the imperative mood. What does that mean? It's a command. When Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, he is commanding us to rejoice, which means joylessness is a sin. You ever thought about joylessness being a sin? Well, you're commanded over and over again to rejoice. So when you don't rejoice, you are sinning and joylessness leads to further sins. That's the problem with joylessness. Fourth, rejoice here is in the second person plural. What does that tell us? It's a communal corporate endeavor. We need each other for joy. God uses human agency. He uses the gift of fellowship. Of encouraging one another, admonishing one another, restoring one another, bearing one another's burdens, weeping with one another. It's a communal burden. But when I am joyless, I will essentially assault, I will be assaulting your joy. Joyless people assault other people's joy. Joy comes as God's people gather together in whatever setting celebrating the grace of God. And that brings us to the fifth point. The object and the source of this joy is the Lord. He says rejoice in the Lord. Any other joy is a counterfeit joy. Which means this is a gospel issue. Jesus himself said that his joy will be in those... Who abide in him that their joy may be full. Think about that. John 15 verse 11. His joy would be in those who abide in him that their joy may be fuel, or full. It's the joy of Christ. The second person of the Trinity. In the Godhead there is fullness of joy that overflows to those who are united to God. But he was also full of joy as a man filled with the Spirit. And that joy is those who abide in him. So when I am joyless, that is the sign I'm not abiding in Christ. I'm not letting his word abide in me. And Paul says, note this in verse 1. This is the importance of expository preaching. You can't avoid phrases. And lines that are so crucial. This is so important, he says, that he has no problem writing the same things to them again. What does that tell us? Tells us he's had to address this before with them. And he is not sheepish about repeating himself. Because of the noetic effects of sin, which affects our minds and our memories, we're never beyond needing the truth retaught to us. In fact, that is, is retaught to us. And as we are called to remember, the spirit gives us illumination on those truths in ways that we perhaps have never seen before. But the second reason he says he has no problem writing this is notice joylessness isn't safe. He says it's for their safety. It's safe for you. Now, I have thought a lot about that this week. He's calling them to rejoice and he says, I don't have a problem repeating myself because this is for your safety. So what does he mean by that? Joylessness isn't safe. It's not safe at the personal level. You can't persist long in the Christian life joylessly without having the devastating effects on your life. Again, we're hardwired for joy. God made us for joy. We were made for him. But when we are joyless, we go on a horizontal search for it. And we find the joy counterfeits that only make our crisis even more severe. Joylessness is not safe at the individual level because you were made for joy. It's not optional. You long for it. Everything you do is motivated by a quest for joy. Even the atheist. Blaise Pascal says, even the man who hangs himself. Secondly, it's not safe at the corporate level. Because behind every division in a family, every division in a marriage, in every division in a church, you will find at least one party is joyless. You have never met a rabble rouser who was filled with the joy of Christ. They don't exist. They're too caught up with ultimate things. Eternal things. To concern themselves with secondary and tertiary matters. Joylessness, or this whole lack of joy, is a gospel issue. And it's always a result... Of anti-gospel teaching or anti-gospel thinking. Let me, again, make that distinction. Either you have a wrong understanding of the gospel of grace, that salvation is all of grace. That is, God has made provision for our sin by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, to fulfill all the terms of God's demands on His image bearers. And then this Christ went to the cross and took the judgment that we deserve. Was raised from the grave for our pardon. Anti-gospel teaching teaches something else than that. They add works. They add baptism to that equation. That's anti-gospel teaching. But anti-gospel thinking. We find that with evangelicals all the time. So their gospel is straight. When it comes to what they profess, but they don't live by the gospel. They don't live by grace. And anti gospel teaching and anti gospel thinking destroys joy because the DNA of joy is gratitude, and contentment, and praise, and worship. Because of the gospel of grace. And hence, verse 2. That brings us to the second point. Authentic, the authentic Christian rejoices in the Lord, but secondly, he rejects anti-gospel teaching. She rejects anti-gospel teaching. Notice in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate The flesh. Now, Paul uses this verb to look out for three times in this verse. Repetition indicates the emphasis that he is, the urgency that he's placing on this. And he caused this anti-gospel faction, we don't know exactly who they are, it's probably the Judaizers were teaching that yes, gospel is by grace, it's by Christ, but also you gotta keep the law, you gotta keep kosher. The food laws, you've got to uh, be circumcised. And he calls this anti gospel faction dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. And these are not arbitrary descriptions, these are intentionally chosen to expose the fact that these rabble rousers are actually the reverse of what they appear. In fact, he uses, and you miss this in English, an alliteration, all starting with the, the Greek letter kappa, or in our English transliteration k. The dogs, kunas. The evildoers, kakus, ergatos, the mutilators, katatome. He's driving home a point. Now the dogs, let's talk about these one by one. In the first century, Dogs were not pets. It was rare to have a pet that was a dog. There were a few, I guess, that had dogs for pets. But in the first century world, dogs were scavengers. They they lived in the garbage heaps. They were richly unclean because of what they ate. In the New Testament, dogs symbolize those who were unworthy... To holy things. And Jesus says in, in Matthew 7. Do not give that which is holy to the dogs. Even in Proverbs. Like a, a dog that returns to his vomit. A fool repeats his folly. A dog was a fool. And in the eyes of the Jews. In the eyes of the Judaizers. Who kept these kosher food laws. That kept them ritually clean. Gentiles were Dogs. Even today, I I was in Israel a couple years ago and I was eating with our Jewish tour guide and I was eating bacon and he was sitting across from me and I said, have you ever had bacon? I said it with mercy and compassion. He said, that's an abomination. It was disgusting to him. Heard him say under his breath, you dog. <laughs> and so here's what Paul is saying here. Though these Judaizers were apparently ritually clean, Paul portrays them as eating pollution. As that which is unclean. Because of what they were teaching, what they were imbibing. Now, who are the dogs today? They are those who focus on what they do rather than what God has done definitively in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You've heard it at funerals. If mama's not in heaven, no one's in heaven. She was a, the most sweet servant. The inference there being mama's in heaven because of what she's done. Well, let me just tell you, if it's based on what we've done, mama's not in heaven. This is doggish thinking. Secondly, evildoers. These were the true law keepers, these Judaizers. And though they claim to keep the law, Paul says they're the ones who break the law. They're doers of evil. He addressed that in Galatians 6 as well. Listen to this, verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They're lawbreakers. Because God looks at the heart. Have You ever heard preachers on television say God knows your heart? As if that's good news? God knows your heart and that's the worst news you've ever heard. Because he loves truth in the inward heart. In the inward places as Psalm 51 says. Paul says. Far be it from me to boast. In anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14. In other words to boast in our performance. Look what I'm doing at the church. Pitch you against Jesus. Which is the most heinous. Form of evil. Thirdly, he says they mutilate their flesh. This is a play on words. Mutilate is a play on the word for circumcision. They want to require circumcision for salvation. A modern day equivalent would be baptism for salvation. Is baptism important? It's fundamental to be obedient. But the moment you're baptized... Is not the moment you're born again. As some will teach. You get baptized because you've been born again. And now baptism reflects that regeneration. That new birth. And these people were teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And they had turned that surgery into a religious hoop to jump through. In fact, Paul is using a word... Mutilation that was used in 1 Kings 18.28 to refer to the false prophets in that that narrative with Elijah who were mutilating their flesh, cutting their flesh to get the attention of the gods. He is essentially saying these false teachers are false prophets. In fact, three times Paul says... In his writings. That circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything. That is the outward act. If you're depending on your outward acts. When you stand before God. You're in a bad way. Circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything. First Corinthians 7.19 though he says. But keeping the commandments of God. Circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything, but Galatians 5, 6 says faith, working through love. Circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything, but Galatians six fifteen new creation. New creation, that's everything. I must be made new. And that brings us to the final point. The authentic Christian rejoices in the Lord... He rejects anti-gospel teaching and thinking. And thirdly, he regards who he is, who she is, because of what God has done in Christ. Notice in verse 3. For we are the circumcision. Who's we? Jews and Gentiles who've been born again. Who've been saved in Christ. We are the circumcision, notice, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, this we are the circumcision builds on the Old Testament teaching that physical circumcision symbolized the removal of the defilement of the flesh. In Genesis 17, when circumcision was introduced to the covenant. That's exactly what it meant. It was never the way by which Abraham was saved because he was justified by faith, it says in Genesis 15. And this circumcision, the spiritual circumcision, that physical circumcision represented and symbolized, can only be accomplished by God. Let me just give you one passage of many. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. So that you will love him. With all your heart, mind, soul and strength. That is the promise of new birth. That is the promise of regeneration. It's the circumcision of the heart. In fact earlier Paul. Had told the Romans. That real circumcision. Is a matter of the heart. Romans 2.29. By the spirit. It's a very important passage. And Paul says. There's three aspects to this life. A life. life. Of the one who is the true circumcision. In these three aspects, there's an upward, there's an outward, and there's an inner aspect, Paul says. The upward, notice, they worship those who are the true circumcision. They worship by the Spirit of God. I love that. When God indwells a believer, he reorients the believer's worship. It's not that you begin worship the moment you're indwelt by the Spirit. We're all worshipers. Even the most ardent atheist is a worshiper. But what the Spirit does, he reorients our worship from the worship of self... to the worship of the true and living God. We go from self-worshippers whose desires whose preferences, whose opinions, whose wants are enthroned. How do we know when our wants, our desires, our opinions are enthroned? When they're not being served, chaos, anger, hostility, grumbling, division, chaos. That's how you know when someone's desires, opinions and wants and preferences are sitting on the throne. But those who worship by the Spirit have been reoriented from the worship of self to the worship of the true and living God. And so when your desires, your preferences, and your opinions are enthroned, that is a symptom that you're not worshiping by the Spirit. It's another spirit. A sinister spirit. Secondly, when this One who is worshiping by the Spirit worships. This person is not caught up in secondary and third and tertiary issues. He or she is caught up in Christ. Notice the second part of this, the outward aspect. They glory in Christ Jesus. You know, how do we know any ministry that purports to be a work of the Spirit is actually a work of the Spirit? Not because the people are just chaotically falling over. It's because the people are centered on the same person the Spirit is centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 16, 14, He will come to glorify me. The Spirit has a spotlight ministry. When you walk into a yard, a spotlight is directed on an object. You don't focus on the spotlight. You focus on the object in which the the light is shining. The Spirit came to glorify the Son. And so those who worship by the Spirit are those who glory in Christ. Now again, Paul is writing this in the context of division and grumbling. Division comes when at least one party in a relationship... Is not glorying and boasting in the Son of God. When you have all parties in a relationship. Focused and centered upon the same object of worship. You have unity. You don't have division. And that brings us to the inward quality. So we have the upward. We have the outward and the inward. Notice they put no confidence in the flesh. Flesh. Here represents humankind at his worst and at his best. The best humankind has to offer cannot be boasted in. We cannot put our confidence, even the best of our acts. If you think you're going to stand before God, and he be impressed with the effulgence of your glory, you're highly deceived. The one who worships by the Spirit, the one who boasts in Christ, the true circumcision, puts no confidence in the flesh. That person knows that he might have enough morality to keep him out of jail, but he does not have enough righteousness to get him into heaven. He puts no confidence in anything he does. No matter how much time he serves the church, how much money he gives the church, he boasts in Christ alone. And that brings us back to the beginning here. What does an authentic Christian look like? We're going to see more of this next week. First of all, he rejoices, she rejoices in the Lord. It's a person whose life is characterized fundamentally by joy. Could that be said of you? Could it be said that your spouse will say at your funeral, he was a joyful man. She was a joyful woman. In fact, there are nearly 400 instances in the Bible of the noun joy or the verb rejoice. 400 instances, 80 in the Psalms and 40 in the Gospels. It's a, a common theme. Secondly, this person rejects anti-gospel teaching or anti-gospel thinking. Which means their life is not grounded by performance. It's grounded by grace. Your spouse isn't acting the way you want her or him to act. You let the gospel reorient the way you treat her. Him or her. Your brothers and sisters in the church are not acting the way you want them to act. You let the gospel reorient the way you treat them. Thirdly, he or she regards who they really are. We are the circumcision. We're the new creation. We worship by the Spirit. We boast and glory in Christ Jesus alone. And we put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. And one of the means that God has given us to rejoice, to renounce, to regard is the table.